Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. I grew up watching Scooby-Doo. Raise your hand if, even if you didn't grow up watching it, you watched it with your kids or your grandkids. Come on now. There it is. Confession is good for the soul. No, I, I, I like Scooby-Doo. I tell you, I grew up watching it. It's fun whenever whatever you watched is still relevant for your kids or your grandkids. And that's not always the case with much of the in this world. But so I grew up with one iteration of Scooby-Doo and my kids, perhaps a different one, but it's the same story, the same characters. In fact, this was one Halloween uh, a couple years ago. That's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's, you can't tell, but that's Josh on the right as Scooby-Doo. That's uh, Jake as Shaggy, and uh, that's their cousin, Judy. Uh, was that Velma? Who would that be? Okay, yeah. So, sorry, bad memory. But uh, there you go. So, uh, that's fun. What I liked about Scooby-Doo, it's the same recipe, it's the same formula, right? But it always seems to work. Something eerie has happened, and there's a mystery that has to be solved. And so here goes, you know, Fred and Shaggy and Velma and the other girl, and um, they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to solve the problem, right? But in in many iterations of Scooby-Doo... Uh, there's this theme that keeps coming up. Fred gets tripped up over something. Fred has an obstacle to figuring out who really did commit whatever the issue is um, because he always seems to jump to the conclusion that it's this one particular person by the name of Red Herring. You remember this? I was such a naive kid, I didn't get the irony of this growing up. Fred always thought it was Red Herring and it was never Red Herring. And I didn't realize till adulthood that red herring is actually a phrase, it's a term. Uh, What is a red herring? A red herring is a distraction from the real issue. It's a misleading clue. It's something that throws you off the scent. And how funny, as I watched Scooby-Doo all those years, the clues seemed to point to red herring, but it was never him. It was just a distraction from who actually did it. And so in Scooby-Doo, Red Herring was always the Red Herring for Fred. And I, Josh, I love the picture too, but you can move on, buddy. <laughs> we all fall prey, fall victim to Red Herrings as well. Um, I could name probably a hundred of them, but let me just give you just some that perhaps are relevant for our time that we could resonate with. In this life, we face opposition of many different kinds. I think that we all would agree with that. Here's just a few. We face cultural opposition, don't we? Uh, The world around us is changing in ways that are contrary to what the Bible prescribes, and we don't like it very much. The culture around us is not one that we're comfortable living in many many times. Uh, It's not one that we're comfortable passing on to our kids and our grandkids, and we wonder how much more it's going to change and what ways it's going to change. And so we as Christians standing for biblical values oftentimes are at odds with culture, and so we do face cultural opposition. And if we're going to be honest, we face political opposition, right? Uh, not, as much, not as much in the same ways as our brothers and sisters in other countries, um, but we do face it. For, for, for instance, during COVID, 
several local and state governments around our country were using the pandemic as an excuse to enforce harsher regulations on churches to keep them from meeting. Many Christian organizations have felt pressure over the years to comply with particular legislation that would compromise biblical morality. You know, and as things keep changing on the horizon, there's always the fear that that's going to be more and more the case as we move on. So we do, in some real senses, face political opposition. We face personal opposition, right? There are many who hate Christians just because they're Christians. There are many who hate what Christians stand for. There are many who reduce Christian belief to a belief in fairy tales, and so they don't take what we have to say seriously, whether we're talking over a Starbucks or a Dunkin' Donuts or whether we're talking uh, in scholarship at, at academies around the world, Christians are automatically taken with lesser respect than other scholars who are not Christians. So I brought up red herrings. What's the red herring in all of this? Because of these instances of opposition, many Christians have come to see our cultural opponents or our political opponents or our uh, personal opponents as our enemies. And the evidence seems to suggest that, right? However, I submit to you that this is a red herring that many of us at many times have fallen for. In fact, I would argue that it is only Satan himself that wants us to see other people as our enemies, because then we'll have no desire to see them saved. We'll have no desire to see them forgiven. We'll have no desire to see them redeemed if we see them in such way as our enemy. And by contrast, I'd suggest that Jesus wants us to see others as God sees them. Because then perhaps our hearts will break for their lostness. Perhaps then we'll do all that we can to see them receive salvation and forgiveness and redemption. Here's what the Bible says. This is not just Kevin's thoughts. Here's just one of the many places we see this spoken about. This, this, that this, this thing that we see in scripture that ought to correct our understanding, move us past the red herring, to, to what perhaps is the real issue going on under it all. This is from Ephesians 6, 12. Paul's writing, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I know you might have heard that and thought, ah, oh, see, Paul just stands up for that. There's our, there's our political uh, op op opposition, rulers, authorities, and powers. But what Paul's writing here is not about human rulers or rule, human authorities or human powers, but in fact, the evil spiritual entities who are our real enemy. And they're the source of opposition, even though we don't hear them, see them, or feel them as we go through this world. You know, there's a reality that the Bible brings to our attention that perhaps is not the way we normally look at the world with natural eyes, and that is that there's a whole lot going on behind the scenes. There's a larger struggle that's been going on throughout the entirety of history, and we are in the midst of it, whether we know it or not, and as God's ambassadors here on the earth, we are in the, in the thick of it, and we need to know what on earth is going on. And so the Bible describes the world as it is now, as the kingdom of this world. And when it talks about who might be the ruler of the kingdom of this world, it isn't who you might think. 
So let me just start out by saying this, that God did create the world perfectly. He created it to be a kingdom, his kingdom. In fact, God created all there is. He created it perfectly. And at the end of the creation, he said it is very good. And he appointed humankind, Adam and Eve, to serve as his stewards here on this earth. The kingdom belongs to God, but humans had the distinct privilege of serving as God's stewards to care for, to govern the earth in God's name and for his glory and to mirror God's glory throughout all of creation. But if you read the first couple chapters of the Bible, you know what happens. Sin enters the world because Adam and Eve decided that it was better to go their way than to go God's way. And something broke at that moment. Something happened. Something threw everything off course. It didn't surprise God, but it certainly changed the path that could have been for all of creation. And so everything and all of creation was now subject to this fall. And this kingdom that God created to be stewards, stewarded by human beings have now gone off course. And it is Satan himself, the Bible says, who snatched, he, he became the squatter who snatched the throne of this world. Here's just some passages that speak to this. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1 to 2, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgression and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So Paul's talking to Christians, those who have come to faith in Jesus, those who are citizens of the kingdom of God, and say that you used to be citizens of this kingdom, the kingdom of this world, whose ruler is Satan, and who everybody who's a part of that is subject to. We see again in John 14, 30 to 31, this is Jesus talking to his disciples not long before his arrest. He says, I'll not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And so Jesus is saying that the prince of this world is Satan, and he's coming after Jesus, but little does he know that will have no effect but to prove the purposes of God. But again, we see that the kingdom of this world is ruled by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So behind every single person you could picture with the word opposition out there, whoever you'd put that on their forehead or a badge on their chest, that's who you'd point to when you think, who is my greatest opponent? And we put human faces to these things. Behind that, behind all of that, is the one who is blinding them to the truth and using them for his ends to try to thwart the plans of God and to be in conflict with God and his kingdom. And so we see in the Bible this idea of the kingdom of this world and the prince of this world who stands opposed to God. But you know what the cool thing about the Gospels is? That we see a new kingdom coming. In fact, I asked this in our Sunday school class this morning, what is the number one topic that Jesus preached on? Jesus preached on a lot of things. You read the Sermon on the Mount, you got a ton of things right there. What's the number one thing Jesus preached on while he was here on the earth? The kingdom of God. 
Here's just some of the things we see from Jesus. Matthew 4, 17, he says, from that it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, the kingdom of heaven is not the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of heaven is ruled by God. It is not ruled by Satan. And at this point in history where Jesus has entered into the world, he's saying that something new has come. Something new is dawning. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is now, that Jesus has come, is now at hand. We read this in Matthew 12, 22 through 28. It says, then they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Could this be the long-awaited Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by who do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Let's break down what Jesus is saying here for just a minute. Jesus has just performed a wonderful miracle. There's a person who has been possessed by a demon, and you could just imagine in what ways his life has been ruined during this time. And here he finds relief, he finds healing, he finds restoration in Jesus, and the crowds are amazed. They're blown away, they're excited for this man, and they've clearly just seen an act of God in their midst. And the Pharisees, not wanting people to think that Jesus is the Messiah, have to throw something at him, some kind of an accusation, so that the people don't follow behind him. And so they say, he's praise casting out demons by the power of Satan. By the king of demons, he casts out demons. And I love this. I love the sarcasm of some of our leaders in the Bible. Here's what Jesus essentially says. Well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Isn't that really the gist of what he's saying? If Satan is going to cast out demons, well, then how on earth is he going to fulfill his mission? He's a house divided against himself. If he's going to ca Satan's going to cast out Satan. Well, that's just the, the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And so he says, you know what? You're accusing me of this, but other people cast out demons. By what power? And the answer that's implied is by the power of God. And what he says here is this, if I cast out demons by the power of God, by the spirit of God, then what you see before you is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in our midst. Now, how does this play into our overall theme I'm talking to you about this morning, about the kingdom? If this world is the kingdom of this world, ruled by Satan, and he blinds the eyes of those who are prisoners, if you will, not just citizens of his kingdom, and Jesus comes and sets prisoners free and helps people to be no longer citizens of the kingdom of this world, but now become citizens of the kingdom of God, then God's kingdom is here and advancing and taking back ground against Satan and the kingdom 
of this world. In fact, we see over and over again through the Gospels that Jesus did what he did to support what he said. And so when he, when he exorcised demons, he was taking background for the kingdom of God. When he was healing people, he was demonstrating the restoration that was going to come when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. Everything Jesus did was to point to the fact that the kingdom of this world's days are numbered and the kingdom of God is coming now that Jesus himself has come. And so Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God was at hand and he demonstrated the truth of it in various ways which we read about through the gospels. But here's an interesting notion. Jesus said in John 14, 12, again, this is shortly before his arrest, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Here's what he says to his disciples. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now, if that's not like shocking to you, then you're not really paying attention to what he's saying. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see some pretty incredible things that Jesus has been doing over and over and over again. And he says, my followers, those I leave behind, those who carry my name, will do the same things that I've been doing. In fact, they'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And so what an amazing thing to think about that God would entrust such powerful moments, such powerful ministry, not just to Jesus, but to those who come after him. And so believe it or not, that last 10 minutes was only the introduction to our passage today. Yes, we're in the book of Acts. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, please open up to Acts chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 1. I promise you I'll get you in home, home in time for the Super Bowl. No, I'm just kidding. So again, we have alluded to some of the things Jesus has done. If you've read the Gospels, if you've listened to sermons, you've heard over and over again the many amazing things. And yet what we see is that the same things that Jesus was doing, we see Paul doing in our passage for today. So we're going to look at three quick episodes in this segment here. But here's Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, it will be up on the screen says, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Oh, I'm sorry. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So just a few, mo just a few words to just make sure we understand what's happening here. Uh, we are reading about an interesting transi transitional point in history here, right? These are people that lived before and after Jesus' death and resurrection. 
In fact, these particular people, these 12 men, had heard John the Baptist and his wilderness proclamations. They heard his call to repent and turn back to God and to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. But at that time when they heard John, the Messiah had not yet come or had not yet made himself known. And so they heard, they turned to God, they were baptized by John, but now they heard the good news from Paul that Jesus, the one that John was talking about, has now come, has now gone to the cross, has now been raised from the dead. And so now they, knowing that Jesus has come, hearing the good news, they placed their faith and trust in Jesus, were baptized and received the Holy Spirit. And in fact, they even had physical evidence of that, prophesying and speaking in various tongues. Uh, and what a wonderful thing that we see here as the Spirit, what's being mentioned here that they have received the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because Jesus provides us the Spirit. He provides all believers the Spirit so that we are fully equipped to continue the mission that he started and we are called to continue. I'm going to say that again. Jesus provides every single believer in Christ the Holy Spirit so that we are fully, thoroughly equipped to continue the mission that he started and we have the privilege of being able to continue. And so these are just some of the things we know about the Spirit. He works in us to bring us to new life, right? When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he regenerates us. He works that process of sanctification, perfecting us and making us more and more into the image of Christ. He's the one that empowers. Empowers for what? Empowers for ministry one to another and empowers for mission to those who are perishing. The Spirit testifies to Jesus and equips those to be able to testify to Jesus. The Spirit, in fact, not only works in us as we proclaim the truth of the gospel, but the Spirit works on the other end of that dialogue, convicting hearts in regard to sin and their need for a Savior, Jesus Christ. The Spirit is essential to ministry and mission. We've talked about this in the past, but the things that God calls us to are rather large. The things that God calls us to are beyond your and my capabilities. If we were to sent out by God to do things on our own strength that he calls us to do, we couldn't possibly do what he has called us to. But in giving us the Holy Spirit, he has given us everything we need, the very power of God to accomplish the things that God has called us to do. And so Jesus himself was powered by the Holy Spirit while on earth. I don't have time to really go into the depths of this, but I'd love to talk to you about it. You know, Jesus, in order to accomplish the things that he's, he accomplished, his divinity, his, his deity, was largely subliminal, subliminal during that time that he was on the earth. We see, however, at his baptism that he received the Holy Spirit. In fact, even that account of the exorcism that we see, that we read a few minutes ago, he gives credit to the Holy Spirit, which is why it was offensive that the Pharisees were saying that it was being done by the power of Beelzebul, because it was, in fact, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit to say it, because it was the Holy Spirit who empowered him. So I want you to think about that for just a minute. The same Spirit that Jesus himself had and the spirit that worked through him as he performed numerous miracles while on the earth is the same Holy Spirit 
that he has entrusted to us to do the same things that Jesus did during his time on the earth. That's, if that's not humbling, I don't really know what is. Jesus provides us the spirit so that we are fully equipped to continue the mission that he started. We read on in verse 8. Here's what it goes on to say. We see the next episode in this time in Ephesus. It says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, the very thing we were talking about today, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken back to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? You know, Jesus said again, the things that I've been doing, you will do and even greater things than these. And we see right here in Paul's ministry some very close similarities to things that Jesus himself was doing. We see exorcisms, we see powerful healings, and we even see that he had the ability to heal people remotely through articles of clothes that touched him. In fact, Janet brought up a good similarity also this morning in Sunday school when the woman with the issue of blood reached out and just grabbed the hem of Jesus's robe and was instantly healed. He didn't even have to initiate it. She didn't even have to touch him just touching his garment, and she was healed. And now we see very similar work in Paul. So let me ask you for just a minute, just to make sure there's no misunderstanding here. Was Paul responsible for this? Was it Paul's power? Was he just such an anointed guy that he could just get this done? No. It is God working through it is Jesus continuing his mission that he started through his people. It is the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that worked through Jesus in his life, working through Jesus' followers in generations after Jesus. Amen. And so here's what we want to pick up from this, from this passage here, that Jesus works in us to advance the kingdom and to demonstrate the power of the kingdom. The same ministry, the same mission, the same proclamation of Jesus, that the kingdom of God is at hand. It is breaking through, and the kingdom of this world's days are numbered is the same thing that is being proclaimed and demonstrated through Paul and through Christians since Jesus. And so like Jesus, Paul healed numerous people and was even able to hear from afar, in this case through objects that he had touched. The Spirit still, to this day, empowers believers to do the same things that Jesus did and more. There's nowhere in the Gospels or the Epistles or Revelation where he says that I will stop using my church to advance the kingdom of God. It's just not in there. And every subsequent generation has been handed this legacy to continue the mission that Jesus started and will continue until Jesus comes back. The Spirit still empowers believers to do the same things Jesus did and more. 
And yes, God can work through us in dramatic spiritual ways, like we saw Jesus and Paul doing. Do we see it all the time in our midst? No. Could there be reasons for that? Sure. Do I hear about that in other places? Yeah, I do. And God could work by his sovereign will in any way that God chooses to do it. And he'll usually do that in ways appropriate for who we're ministering to in relevant ways. But listen, God could even work through practical ways that we are called to as we demonstrate love to all people, as we, demonstrate, as we feed the poor, as we aid widows and orphans, as we house the homeless, walk alongside those in recovery, and countless other ways. Now here's the question. Are we always doing these things that demonstrate that God's kingdom is breaking through on the earth? When people look at us, the church, do they see God's kingdom breaking through? Do they hear the proclamation and do they see a demonstration of the truth of it? Or do they see and hear nothing? Or do they hear it but not see it? And these are ways we have to constantly evaluate how we're doing in following Jesus and what he has called us to do and continuing the mission that he has started. All of the ailments of our civilization are reminders of the brokenness of this world that currently is under Satan's rule. And by allowing Jesus to work through us to advance his kingdom, it points forward to the restoration that will come when Jesus returns. Again, Jesus works in us to advance the kingdom and to demonstrate the power of the kingdom if we are willing to step out in obedience to him and do these things. And here's the third episode we see in our passage for today, starting in verse 13. It says, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon possessed. So these are not Christians. These are Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus. But hey, it sounds it's working. So let's use that name. They would say in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Yeah, an awkward moment for sure. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I had been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. We see some fun things here, don't we? It's kind of a funny episode when you think about it. Here comes some pretenders. Hey, that seems to be working for Paul. Um, let me try that. And uh, it did not end up working too well in their favor. How amazing how that instance, that encounter, as they ran from the house naked and bleeding, and word of this spread that even the demon recognized the name of Jesus. 
And this spread throughout the area, and people were coming to faith in Jesus. Now, Ephesus was this center of occult activity, the center of sorcery, the center of devotion to magical arts and all these kinds of weird occult things. And it's in the midst of this context of Ephesus that Paul and his ministry is breaking through. And here's these people trying to cast out demons and their ways aren't working. And so they try to invoke the name of Jesus, but they don't believe in him. They're not filled with his spirit. They're not empowered to do the things like cast out demons, like Paul and Jesus' followers are doing. And it backfires on them. And then here's this whole community that now regards the truth of the power of Jesus from this encounter. And you have people who dedicated their whole lives to doing these kinds of things, to magical arts, to sorcery, to, to, to exorcisms. And they have repented now. And in fact, in doing that, they're giving up their livelihood. These are people who charged money for these services, and they've walked away from it. They brought their scrolls and, and their books of enchantments and invocations and things that cost them a lot of money and burnt them. And all of that, they count loss for the truth of Jesus, much like Paul did. It was all utterly worthless to them when the truth of Jesus is before them. And so here's the last thing, the last point from our passage is this, that Jesus will further his reputation through his followers. Jesus will further his reputation through his followers. The power of the name of Jesus was recognized by the Jewish exorcists in our passage and by numbers of others who had seen and heard what had happened. You know, the name of Jesus and the power associated with it is not just something you read about in the Bible. It's not just something that you know, Luke made up to sound Jesus, makes Jesus sound really good. Do you know that we actually have uh, historical evidence from the second, third, and fourth centuries of a collection of Greek papyri? It's called the Greek Magical Papyri. And what it is is kind of the same thing that these people would devote themselves to. It was a collection of enchantments and invocations and things to do in the case of this or that ailment. And in the midst of that, there is an inclusion of using the name of Jesus, the God of the Jews, uh, in casting out demons. This was not by Christians. It wasn't even by Jewish people. It was by pagans living a century or two or three after the time of Jesus. But even in the centuries following, the name of Jesus and the power associated with it was evident to all people that they were even incorporating that into their non-Christian works of various kinds. Here's the thing. We have the ability to advance Jesus's reputation. We also have the ability to besmirch Jesus's reputation, to tarnish his reputation. As his followers, we have the distinct privilege, the distinct honor of being able to uphold and proclaim the reputation of Jesus, to build it up by allowing him to work in and through us. But in the same token, we have the ability to actually tarnish it, to hurt it in the eyes and the minds of people around us. When we live out obedience to him and do the things that he did during his time on earth, Jesus furthers his reputation through us, his people. 
when we live in anger or apathy toward others, when we're not intentional about the things of the kingdom of God, when we do not live out our obedience to Christ as he calls us to, we actually tarnish the reputation of Christ. And so my challenge to us today is is this. Friends, we need to first avoid all red herrings. Um, You know, other people are not our enemies. In fact, Jesus has made it very clear, and Paul echoes it, and the other writers of the epistles echo this, who is our enemy? Our enemy is Satan and those spiritual forces that work for him and at work against the kingdom of God in this world. They're your enemy. They hate you. They want to destroy you. They want to tear down everything you stand for. They don't want you to have a shot. Praise God, God is stronger than Satan and his minions. We fight that war against them by allowing God's spirit to work in us and to work through us to advance the kingdom of God against the kingdom of this world. This life also is not about your kingdom. That's a red herring we fall for all the time. All the evidence seems to suggest it. You know, Burger King used to say, your way right away. Well, all the evidence seems to be that way. Look at all the ways in which I can build myself up. I can seek my own security. I can seek my own comfort. I can seek my own happiness. I can seek my own reputation. I can, there's so many things in this world, in our culture, that make us think this is the path forward. This is what we're all here for. This is the best way to live our lives. And so we fall for the red herring that our life is about our kingdom, but it's not. It's about the kingdom of God. Too often we focus all of our time and energy and resources for our comfort and advancement and safety and good. The life is not about us. It's about Jesus. A red herring is a distraction or a misdirection from the truth. Anything that stands opposed to what God commands is nothing but a red herring. And so I encourage you to avoid them at all costs. And as we try to live lives that honor the Lord and allow him to further his kingdom through us, we need to be wholeheartedly devoted to him and to his mission, stepping out in obedience in the places he calls us to, knowing full well that it is his power at work within us that accomplishes even more than we could ask or imagine. If only we step forward and say, here I am, send me.